Our story has three sections. The first section is John begins by doubting the identity of Christ. He asks the question, are you the Christ? The second section is Jesus responds to John. He says, you know what, John's okay. It's okay that John's doubting. And then the third um, section of this story is Jesus then turns to the crowd and he says, John may be doubting, and you may be doubting, but in the end, you have to be you have to be responsible for how you deal with me. He says, it's okay to doubt, but you can't use your doubts as a crutch to avoid the truth. You have to do something with me. And so those are the three sections. And so I kind of want to go through those three sections together. And what I thought we'd do is we'd spend a little bit of time on the first section. And in the first section, I want to just kind of have like a coffee house conversation. I want to sit down, take off our shoes, let our hair down. Okay, I'll be honest, I'm not going to let my hair down. I'm not going to take my shoes off either. But I just want to have a real honest and hard look at doubt. I want to examine the issue of doubt. Do you, do you ever doubt? Good, I'm not the only one. Do you ever wrestle? Do you, I mean, have you ever wrestled with God? I have done some wrestling in my day. Have you ever experienced what one author has called the dark night of the soul? And so I want to take a good hard look. I'm going to spend some time thinking about doubt. And then in our second section, I, I want to do what Jesus did, and he, he, he answers John's doubt. And I want to say that I think Jesus is okay with our doubt. So I just want to spend a little bit of time saying, it's okay. And then the third section um, is the ironic part. Jesus says, now you may have doubt, and doubt's okay, but in the end, you still have a responsibility. You have to choose what you're going to do with the Messiah. You can't use your doubts as a crutch to avoid the truth. So I want to spend some time there. So let's start. It's going to be fun. Luke chapter 7, verse 18. It says this, The disciples of John reported all these things to John, and then John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So this story is really hard to tell without some previous knowledge, or at least a couple of back stories. We're in Luke chapter 7. So in order for us to understand what's really happening here with John the Baptist, we kind of have to go back in time and go to Luke chapter 1, right? We've got to have a backstory about, well, we've got to have two backstories. I need to tell you a backstory about John and a backstory about Jesus. So would you go with me back in time? Let's go back to Luke chapter 1. You can stay where you are because I'm just going to tell the story. Luke introduces us to John the Baptist in chapter 1 where we meet his, his parents. He's got two parents, a dad and a mom. The dad's name is Zacharias. The mom's name is Elizabeth. And the Bible says they were very old. They were well advanced in years, which I take to mean something like 42 or something like that. <clears throat> Actually, I'm just kidding. They're probably something like a hundred and something because they were so old they couldn't have kids. But they were praying, God, can we please have a kid? We really want to have a kid. And so an angel comes to Zechariah. He's a, he's a priest. And the angel says to Zechariah, not only are you going to have a kid, but you're going to have a boy. Isn't that so cool? I'm just kidding. I have two boys. I like boys. But he says, you're going to have a special boy. He's going to be the one that prepares the way for Messiah. He's going to be the one that mows the lawn, if you will, so Messiah can walk on some smooth grass. And so you just know that John's parents don't let John forget this, right? You know, you're a special kid, a forerunner of the Messiah and all. And special kids obey their parents, John. 
Special kids do their homework. So I'm sure John didn't go without knowing his destiny because when we are introduced to him in Luke chapter 2, he's an adult. And he's a homeless man and he's living out in the wilderness and he eats bugs and honey and he doesn't wear clothes. Well, he wears clothes, but they're like camel skin clothes. He's a weird, eccentric dude. But it doesn't change the fact that thousands of people are going out to see him. I mean, thousands of people, rich tax collectors, snobby religious leaders, they all take the long hike to the wilderness in order to see John do his thing. And John has a very popular preaching ministry, despite the fact that I think his message isn't so popular. His message is simple. It's, you're a sinner, and God is coming soon, so you better get baptized in this here Jordan and get your sins washed away. And then one day when John was out there doing his thing, he's baptizing, he's teaching, he's telling people you're wicked, you need to get saved. Someone says, are you the Messiah? And John says, no, no, no. I'm the one to prepare the way for the Messiah. He knows his destiny. He says, I'm unworthy even to touch the Messiah's sandals. And then Jesus comes. Oh, and I just get goosebumps when I think about it. John is like, is that him? Behold, the Son of God, the Lamb who takes away, he takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus says, what's up, cuz? <laughs> I need you to baptize me. And John says, whoa, 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 I can't be baptizing you. you, you I can't even touch your shoes, man. And Jesus says, no, 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 it's, 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 it's important. And the Bible says, all the Gospels, most of the Gospels say that a miraculous event happens when he baptizes Jesus. He puts him in the water, and right when he pulls him up, the Gospel writers say the sky just opens up. And a dove comes out of that opened sky and lands on Jesus. And a voice is heard, the Scripture says, which means Jesus heard this voice, John heard this voice, the crowds heard this voice. The voice was heard, and it said, this is my son. And so that's the backstory of John, and it makes me wonder, if John gets a miraculous birth to old people, parents, and John gets to be told by an angel, you're the forerunner of the Christ, and John baptizes the Christ, and he sees an open sky, a bird, and he hears the voice of God saying, this is the Messiah, how is it that John could ask this question? Are you the Messiah? Now, when I was baptized, there were no birds. There were no voices, you'll be happy to know. There wasn't even a sky because I was baptized inside a free will Baptist church in San Leon, Texas in this lukewarm, salty, for some reason, baptismal. So if John gets open skies, birds, and voices, and he can still doubt, I wonder how much more you and I will doubt. So I want to talk about that. Do you ever doubt? Do you ever wrestle with God and, and want to know, where are you, God? God, how long am I going to be looking for a job? Do you, do you know that I'm looking for a job, Lord? God, is this cancer really going to take me? How long am I going to have to pray for my kids before they finally find Jesus? God. Now, I'm comforted by the fact that John the Baptist doubts. Because if he can doubt, then I guess I can too. But I have to also be a little honest. I'm not real comfortable with the way Jesus answers John's doubt. Listen, listen to what Jesus says. He says, 
In that hour, verse 21, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight, and he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and, and heard. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So, can I ask you, do you feel like Jesus answered John's question? I mean, there's no doubt about John's question. John is doubting. Because he asks this question, and it gets repeated twice verbatim. Are you the one, or should we wait for another? And the disciple said, John says, are you the one, or should we wait for another? In other words, are you the Messiah, or is the Messiah yet to come? And Jesus says, he quotes Isaiah 61, essentially. So I don't really feel like Jesus really answered the question. It's a yes or no question. Are you the Messiah? Can you just give me a yes or no? Do you ever want God just to give you a yes or no? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, this is why we need the backstory of Jesus. So, so we've got to go back again to chapter 2 or 3 of Luke and, and, and figure out some stuff about Jesus. Jesus has a backstory too. So, so after Jesus gets baptized by John in the early part of Luke, he goes in the wilderness, gets tempted for 40 days, comes out, and he goes to a synagogue. And, and, and he just goes to church on Sunday, or Sabbath on Saturday, I should say. And he's sitting there with everyone else. And the leader says, Jesus, why don't you read scripture for us? And Jesus says, oh, okay, sure, I'll do that. And they hand him a scroll. And he takes the scroll and he, he, he unrolls it. He finds a verse. He's look, oh, there it is, Isaiah 61. And he reads it for them. And Luke records the way he reads it. He reads it, I want you to show you how he reads it. He reads it exactly like this. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me, he sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives. And recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who have been oppressed. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the word of the Lord. And he rolls up his scroll, hands it back to the leader, says thank you. And he sits back down. That's what Luke tells us in chapter 4. And while he's sitting there, Jesus can tell everyone's still looking at him. Have you ever felt like people are looking at you when you're in church? Maybe it's just me. And he turns and he says, today, this passage has been fulfilled in your hearing. Oh, I know he didn't. The people got so upset, they literally grabbed him and dragged him out of the church. They took him to the edge of town and put him on this cliff in order to push him off. And the Bible says he just slipped out of the crowd, which I think is so cool. How did he do that? Why were they so mad? Why did they want to push him off this cliff? Because every Jew knew that that passage in Isaiah 61 was a clear prophecy about the coming of the servant of the Lord, the coming of Messiah. And it said the coming of Messiah would proclaim good news to the poor, would heal the sick, would give sight to the blind, would release the captives from prison. And so this is Jesus' favorite verse. He's already quoted it twice in Luke. He's claimed it as his own. He says, I'm fulfilling this verse. So this is Jesus' life verse, I guess you could say. So that's the backstory of Jesus. That's why when we get over here and John's disciples come to Jesus saying, are you the Messiah? Jesus, when he quotes this verse, do you see how he really does answer the question? 
I'll do it even better. If you look at the passage there in Luke 7, it says, Now, in that hour, Jesus healed many who were sick and who had plagues. So it's almost like Jesus is, I mean, John's disciples come to Jesus and say, Hey, John sent us. He wants to know, are you the one or should we wait for another? And Jesus says, Hold, hold that thought and, and watch this. And he comes over here and he starts healing people. He wipes out plagues. He, he heals the sick. He, he raises the dead. Long day's work, a few hours. He comes back to the disciples of John and say, go tell John what you saw. Go, go tell him what you saw and then, and then quote Isaiah 61 like this. And he tells them, I raised the dead, sight to the blind. So you see, Jesus didn't just answer the question. He proved it. I love that. I mean, he could have just said, yeah, I, I am the Messiah. Go tell John, yeah. But then John might have been thinking, but how do I know? I mean, of course he would say he is. How do I know? Jesus bypasses that whole confusion and says, watch me. Do these things, come back, quote the Old Testament. See, I'm him. Now, I'm going to be honest about, I want to have this hard look about doubt. I've wrestled with God about a lot of things in my life. I've, I've even shook my fist, been frustrated. And I really do think that all of us are going to experience this time when we have this dark season of the soul. Whether you're saved or unsaved, I think we're going to wrestle with doubt. I mean, you have this season of silence where you wonder, are you even listening to me? And I think part of the reason why I believe that is well, to be honest, because Jesus tends to answer my questions most of the time the way he answered John's. Like, he doesn't just give you the yes or no. He makes you work at it. He makes you figure it out a little bit on your own. Where are you, God? I'm the Messiah. Yeah, I know. Okay, but where are you? I'm the Messiah. Here, here's something to think about. Do you notice how when Jesus quotes the Isaiah verse to John's disciples, he totally skips a certain section of it. I mean, I know Jesus knows the text because he's quoted it in Luke 4, and Luke 4 is still on the screen there for you. But did you notice that he didn't say all of that to John's disciples? Did you see what he skipped? He actually skipped it twice. Two times it's mentioned in Isaiah, two times it's mentioned in Luke 4, no times it's mentioned in Luke 7. And it's Proclaiming freedom or liberty to the captives and to set at freedom those who have been oppressed. I find that interesting. Because in this story right now, John the Baptist is in prison. I mean, he's in a dungeon and he's about to get his head cut off, served up on a silver platter to Herod's wife. That might be why he's doubting. <laughs> That's definitely why he sent his disciples, right? Because he couldn't go. <laughs> Go to Jesus, ask him this question, are you the Messiah or, or do I need to wait here in prison for the real Messiah to come and save me from prison? Because if you're the Messiah, aren't you supposed to set the captives free? I could use some freedom. I'm about to die up in here and I want to know, are you the Messiah? And if you are, where are you? Are you going to get here in time or I'm going to lose my head? So tell me, are you the one? Or do I need to think of an escape route? And that's kind of the way God answers our questions most of the time. See also the Psalms, see also Job, see also John the Baptist. Because Jesus says, I'll tell you, yes, I'm the Messiah. I'll prove it to you. See how I healed all these people? Now I'm going to send you back with this quote, and I'm going to purposely not put the, the, the prison thing in there. 
And I can't help but think that John's thinking, okay, thanks for answering my question, but what about the, why did, why did he skip the prison thing? Did he do that on purpose? Of course he did it on purpose. He's the Messiah. So why did he do it on purpose? Does that mean I'm going to die in here? I don't understand. I did everything he wanted me to do. And I'm going I'm to get my head cut off for a Gentile? And I don't hear Jesus answering that question. Where, where are you? Is the cancer going to take me? You, do, you, do you remember Paul Newman in the movie Cool Hand Luke? Did you guys ever see that movie? You need to see it. It's cult, cult classic. He arrogantly just always tests God. Are you up there, old man? Hey, you got something to say to me, old man? Where, where are you in this? And that's, that's really a very common question in, in the Bible and in, and in our own lives, I think. So I'm just going to kind of end this heart-to-heart conversation by saying, you know, doubt is real. And even if God came down from the heavens and spoke to you in an audible voice, I think we're still going to have doubt. We're still going to have questions. Jesus doesn't seem to be preoccupied with answering all of our questions. That leads us to our second point. I want us to see how Jesus responds to John. In verse 24, he says this. When John's messengers had left, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. He said, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? No. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothes? No, because you know that men in soft clothes live in courts. So what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, a prophet, but more than a prophet. And then Jesus says this, because John is he of whom it is written in the Old Testament, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. So Jesus says, he's the Elijah. He's the one to come. He's the forerunner of the Christ, the Messiah. And then Jesus says this, I tell you, among all men born of women, which is pretty much all of them, there is none greater than John. But then he adds this as well, which is comforting. Yet to the one who is least in the kingdom of God, he is greater than he. So I want to make sure I'm clear about this. It's okay to doubt. Did you catch that? I mean, if John can doubt, you can too. And Jesus doesn't rebuke John for his doubt like he normally does, right? Jesus is normally saying, oh, you of little faith, where is thou faith? Right? Jesus is always, where is your faith? Oh, you have little faith. And John, who heard, Jesus, who heard God say, this is the Messiah, comes to Jesus and says, are you the Messiah? And Jesus could very well say, are you kidding me, John? Don't you remember my daddy told you already? But he doesn't. Instead, he turns to the crowd and he says, don't you judge John. John's struggling. But he's not a weakling. He's not a reed shaken in the wind. He'll get through this. You don't judge John. He's wrestling. He's right to wrestle. I'm going to let him wrestle. You see, doubt is not the enemy. Doubt is not a sin. And, I, and, I've, and I've kind of got the impression lately that we have treated doubt in the church like it's a sin. Like I've had some friends, and, and myself including, have, have wrestled with some questions and some doubt. And, and some of my friends have told me they didn't feel like they were comfortable to Talk about that doubt in the church. They felt like they had to wrestle alone because they would be judged. And I think that's sad. 
Because I think we have demonized doubt in that way. C.S. Lewis says there are two mistakes that we make when we think about doubt. First, the theological liberal tends to be too soft on doubt. They like doubt. They like the uh, ambiguity and uncertainty of, of cool, penetrating questions, right? Dude, let's ask some questions, man. I don't even really know if liberals talk like that, but that, was, that came out on accident. <laughs> but then he also says this. He says, theological conservatives um, tend to be too hard on doubt, we demonize the dire consequences of unresolved doubt, and ver we verge on a spiritual perfectionism that leaves the doubter in such a state of guilt or disrepair that he dare not even acknowledge his doubt to others or, even worse, himself. And so we just ignore it, which is dangerous. So that's why I want to kind of beat this horse. It's okay to doubt. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith is unbelief. One author who writes a lot about doubt said a definition for us. He says, um, did I pass it already? Doubt is the state of mind in suspension between faith and unbelief. So it's a state of mind. You're having a question. Where are you, God? Do you even care about me, God? And that's a doubt. And it is right now currently in a state of suspension between faith and disbelief. And you have a choice. You can wrestle with that doubt. You can be open about that doubt. You can communicate that doubt in your church family, which would be a great place to do that. And then you could be reminded by people who love you. You know what? The Bible says God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. I know that he hears you. I know that he's concerned with you. And you can begin to doubt that doubt and move towards a stronger faith. Doubt can strengthen your faith. Or if you're in that state of suspended doubt of wondering, does God care? And you say, he must not, then you're falling towards disbelief. So doubt isn't the enemy. Doubt is, well, it just is. This same writer, his name's Guinness, he says, I believe in doubt. That's what we should say, quote unquote. I believe in doubt, which is another way of saying that there's not believing without doubting so that even while we're doubting, we believe. In other words, faith is being sure of things unseen. And so there's an element of doubt already in that. Doubt isn't the enemy. You've got to doubt a little bit in order to have faith. And those people who wrestle with their doubt, I have found, have stronger faith. The bigger the doubt, the stronger the faith. Those people who don't wrestle with their doubt or ignore their doubt or get preoccupied with their doubt have disbelief. So doubt is okay. You know, there have been some great, great Christian thinkers of our time who were just very, very skeptical people, you know, who were like really good atheists who then all of a sudden became really good Christians. Like C.S. Lewis, for instance. He's one of my favorite Christian thinkers of our age. Before he became saved, he was a really powerful atheist. He, he would describe himself as an angry atheist. He said, I was very angry with God for not existing. I mean, he was an angry atheist in Oxford, England. I, I would hate to have had to sit under a debate where Lewis was proving that God didn't exist. I would have more doubts today than I already do. But then he got saved. And he did not want to be saved. And he said, he described his journey of becoming a Christian as being kicking and struggling, resentful and darting my eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. And he wrote that book, The Great Divorce, which is like gorgeous. 
description of wrestling away from, I don't want you. He said, I did not want to be a Christian, but I, it was irresistible. I couldn't deny the truth. C.S. Lewis is just one of those guys. There's lots of guys like that who have been atheists, tried to disprove Christianity, and come back one of the strongest Christian apologetic writers of our time. Josh McDowell, Chuck Colson, Lee Strobel, I mean, lots of guys. How about this name? Do you recognize this name? Rene Descartes. Do you recognize that name? French philosopher. Um, came up with the famous line, I think, do you remember? Therefore I am. Now, he lived in a time period in which it was cool to doubt everything, everything, including your own existence. So they lived like in the Matrix or something, I don't know, but they, they, they doubted all their existence, and they said, I can't even be sure that I exist. And Descartes said, this is not fun. We've got to start to have some place to stand. So I'm going to deconstruct everything I can, get to a place where I can't even be sure if I exist. And that's when he came up with the line, wait a minute, I'm thinking, so therefore I must exist. I think, oh, therefore I am. And he built this, this, this foundation, this platform in which he could step up and begin to see, wait a minute, if I exist, other things exist too. You exist. Because you're thinking and we're talking. And, and if you and I exist, then God must exist. And in a time period where it was cool to be an atheist, he made it uncool to be an atheist because of his doubt. So if I haven't beat that horse dead yet, I just want to say this. It's okay if you're doubting. If you're wrestling, if you're having questions, your questions are welcomed here. Please get with a home group, get with some elders, get with some pastors and ask those questions. Some of those questions can be answered. I've had questions answered. Some of them I haven't had answered yet, but that's okay. We learn to deal with our doubt in a close-knit family, in a safe environment, as opposed to doing it all by yourself. It's not good. John didn't do it by himself. He went, sent word to Jesus, I need help here. I'm struggling. All right, leads us to our last point. Doubt can be a blessing or it can be a curse. Verse 29. When all the people heard what Jesus had said about John and the tax collectors too, they declared that God was just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Before we go any further, I want to just to clarify here. Um, Luke, I think, is very intentional. He wants us to see this contrast bef between the tax collectors and the, and the religious leaders. All throughout the book of Luke, Luke is always saying sinners, comma, tax collectors too, comma, and Pharisees. I love that he does that. Because the tax collectors are like the most evil, wicked people that you can imagine. There's, there's no comparison in our, in our world today. They were traitors of their own people, stealing money from them so that they can get rich and they can give it to Rome. Everyone hated them. So Luke always says sinners were going all the way out to hear John preach and get baptized. Even tax collectors were getting saved by Jesus and John, getting their lives transformed. But the Sadducees and the Pharisees, different story. They went out to judge John, and they come here to judge Jesus. Big difference. And so Jesus looks at them and says, so uh, what can I say about you people? I mean, I, I kind of want to draw a caricature of you, and I'm thinking of something right now. What can I call you? I'm going to call you a name. <laughs> I love that Jesus says that. You know what I mean? Like, we don't talk like that. I'm getting ready to call you a name. I'm thinking of it right now. And then, and then he, Jesus does, does that. Look what he says. He says in verse uh, 20, 31, 
To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? He says, ah, they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. He says, for John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he is a demon. But the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of sinners and tax collectors too. And then he adds this line, yet wisdom will be justified by her children. So Jesus essentially calls them spoiled, childish brats. That's what my professor at Dallas in his commentary says, Daryl Bach. He says, the Greek here basically is translated, you're brats. You've got this bratty, childlike attitude. That's what you are. And, and you know what the bratty, childlike attitude is, right? Every kid, I mean, kids aren't brats. I love kids. But they have this bratty attitude. And the attitude is, you either play my way or I'm going to take my toys and what? Go home, yeah. Or you either play by my rules or we're not playing at all. That's the bratty, childish attitude. Long time ago, I was playing Monopoly with a bunch of teenagers. And this kid got so mad, he flipped the, the Monopoly board all over the place and knocked everything on the floor. Because we weren't playing by his rules. We, we were playing with the rules of squatter rights. You know what those are? That is, if you land on someone and they don't see you, you don't have to pay them. And then the next person rolls the dice. Oh, you missed it. Ah, I'm safe. And he said, wait a minute, you landed on me and you didn't pay me. And I said, no, 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 you didn't, you didn't catch it. It's your fault. No, 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 Look, the rules say squatter rights. Look, ah, he got mad and threw the whole Monopoly board in the air. Houses, motels, tornado of just chaos. All because he didn't get $12 in his colored pastel money. He essentially said, you don't play by my rules, we ain't playing. It's frustrating. It's frustrating to me when I watch my kids. I mean, their to toddlers do this very well, you know? Like, like Josiah can't wait all day for his best friends to come over at, at, for community group night, right? And the kids come over and they run, oh, you're here, let's go downstairs. They run downstairs and within 30 seconds, all you hear is crying like someone had gotten punched in the face. You're like, what is going on down there? And you go down there like, oh, what's going on? It's like, what, what's happening? And then you try to make out what they're saying because they all have like this Smurf voice, right? And then they say... We're trying to play monster, but he won't be the monster. He wants me to be the monster, and I don't want to be the monster. I'm always the monster, and you can't play monster unless there's a monster, and no one wants to be the monster. <laughs> if you don't play my rules, I'm not playing. Adults never do that, though. <laughs> Jesus says, that's what you're like. That's what you're like because, you know, you didn't like John because John fasted from food and fasted from wine and fasted from cool clothes. And you thought he went too far. You thought he went too deep. You thought he went, he was a freak. He was a Jesus freak, you know? He was an ascetic, and you don't want to go there. But then I come along, and I like food. I, I drink wine. I have pretty good taste in clothes. I hang out with my friends, and you say that I'm a drunk, a glutton, and that I'm friends with sinners. So what gives, y'all? You're not going to be happy no matter what. You don't like John, you don't like me. What, do you, what are you going to like? See, the thing is, is that you're not going to like anyone unless they play by your rules. And I don't play by your rules, partly because you keep changing them. You know, I, I have a lot of friends who aren't Christians who I think they're afraid to become Christians because they're afraid that once they do, they're going to end up like John the Baptist and they're going to have to give up food and give up wine and all of a sudden have bad taste in clothes. <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.
But Jesus kind of says, at the same time, you can't use your doubt and your fear and your, and your questions as a crutch to avoid the truth. Because when you do, you're just being a brat. So it's kind of ironic because we started off, I started off at least, being real compassionate and loving and kind about doubt, right? Doubt's cool, man. It's okay. You can doubt. I doubt. John doubts. Even beat that head horse dead by saying Jesus is okay with your doubt. But then it gets a little tricky when we go over here and say, but you must examine that doubt. And you have to ask yourself, is it real or is it a crutch that you're leaning on so you can avoid the truth? Jesus says, if it's a crutch, I'm not going to play that childish game with you. You've got to snap out of it. You've got to make a decision about me. John's question was about me, and you've got to decide about me. What do you, you've got two choices. You can make the choice of wisdom. That's the last sentence. He goes, wisdom will be known by her children. You can make the, that's the iron, irony, right? Faith, which is the other side of doubt, is wisdom. Those who choose faith in Christ are called children of wisdom. Those who come on this side of doubt and can't decide and lean on their crutches, Jesus says, you're the child. You're the brat. And he even says this. He says, I'll be an offense to you. Remember that beatitude in the middle of the whole text? He says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And that word offended is the Greek word scandalon, which is a very popular title of Christ. He's a scandal. He is a trap you're going to trip over him. So you got two choices. You can be blessed by not tripping over him and finding faith or tripping over him and picking yourself up in faith or you can be cursed, trapped because you were offended by him. So here's how I think this fleshes out in conclusion. Um, I've got some friends who are not saved, who are not Christians, and, and a lot of times when I try to talk to them about God and about Jesus, it gets all philosophical for some reason. And they'll say things like, well, if God is real, why is there pain in the world? Why is there problems in the world? Why is he not dealing with this? Where, where was he when my sister died last year? And I, and I kind of want to say, man, where did you hear that from? Like a philosophy class or something? Because that's not even a really good argument. I mean, I, I really am sorry that you've had tough times. I mean, I've had tough times. I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to have tougher times, and so will you. But just because there's suffering, just because there's pain, doesn't mean that God doesn't exist. That's, that's dumb. God doesn't have to play by your rules. He doesn't have to answer all your questions. God, I know, exists, and I know that he loves you. I know that he sent his son to pursue you with a lavish kind of love. I know that his son died upon the cross for you. And the Bible says that he was well acquainted with grief and suffering and pain and sorrow. And so God knows suffering. You know, Jesus even had questions. Don't forget that on the cross, Jesus said, why? Why have you forsaken me? So if John the Baptist can ask questions, if Jesus can ask questions, if Jesus can suffer, those can't be used as an excuse not to believe in the existence of God especially because God loves you too much to let you wallow in that childish, bratty crutch. So Jesus says, I love you. I understand your doubt. 
I'm comfortable with your doubt. If I wasn't comfortable with your doubt, I'd just answer all your questions, but I don't. I'm, I'm okay with your doubt. But in the end, you have to make a choice. Is your doubt real? Are you wrestling with it real? Or is it just one of those things you're ignoring as a, as a crutch? If, are you just a brat that says, you know what, if God doesn't answer my questions, then I don't want anything to do with him. And if that's the case, then Jesus says, you're going to be cursed. Blessed is the one who doesn't find an offense. Offended is the one who finds an offense. Wisdom are the ones who choose faith. Brats are the ones who choose, if you don't play by my way, God, then forget about it. My hope and prayer today is twofold. One, I hope that some of you are wrestling and struggling, and I hope that what you heard was, that's okay. But my greater hope, to be honest with you, is that there are some of you here who are teetering on your faith. And you're saying, I don't know about this God, Jesus stuff. And I want to say, I've been there, and that's okay. Jesus does love you. He will transform your life. He loves sinners. He loves tax collectors. He's compassionate to the doubter. But that doesn't give you an excuse not to make a choice. You've got to choose yes or no. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he died on the cross for your sin? And he did. I know that he did. He's changed my life, and he can change yours. And so I'm praying that some of you here today will receive Jesus as your Savior and find that you're no longer blind to your doubt, but you can see. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, you are a good God. Even though sometimes we don't remember that. Sometimes we don't feel that or sense that. Sometimes we ask, where are you? What, what's going on? What? I'm comforted and, 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 and thankful to know that you're okay with us asking those questions. You're, you're bigger than our questions. I ask, Lord, that you would help our disbelief, you would help our unbelief, that you would give us stronger faith. I also pray, Lord, that you would just wrap your arms around each of us so that we would sense your presence in such a way that doubt really just becomes a small thing because we've learned to doubt our doubts because we are un, un, it's, unres, it's irresistible how much you've loved us. We know that you're real. And I pray also, Lord, that if there's anyone here in this room that even today they'll call out to you and they'd say, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Will you save me? Will you give me answers? Will you, will you give me hope? Will you protect me? Will you, will you defend me even though I'm a doubter? And I ask these things, Lord, for your glory and for the glory of your mighty Son, Jesus. Amen.